As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's wonderful guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I am joined by the brilliant Dr. Lydia McGrew, a widely published analytic philosopher and author. She defends the reliability of the Gospels and acts in several books, most recently in her fantastic new book, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us again today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about your brilliant book, Testimonies to Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Now, the final chapter of this book, we spent a lot of the previous episodes talking about some of the other chapters, some of the reasons that you can sort of trust the Gospels as historically reliable documents. In the final chapter, you very much hone in on the person of Jesus And you sort of describe him as many different things. I'm just going to read some of the things that you describe him as. Witty, teaching, disconcerting, sarcastic, lonely, suffering, the I told you so Jesus. Um, And then you kind of talk about, you know, the authentic picture of Jesus, the real Jesus. And we're going to delve into some of those in, in detail now. But I guess before we get to those kind of specifics, why is it important that we have an accurate picture of the historical Jesus? Christianity is centered around Jesus as a real person, a real man, not not just an ethereal heavenly figure. And we're called as Christians, you know, to, to try to be like Jesus. The epistles of Paul talk about that being made like him and so forth and following him and knowing him. That's like our whole goal. Um, and it, it really seems to me important that we know him historically in order to know him at all. Because otherwise, the temptation is to make him into our own image or the image of what we would like him to be like. Um, and instead, we're supposed to be conforming ourselves to his image. So that historical reality is that kind of an uncompromising factual thing that we need to be able to deal with. And in order to deal with it, we need to know it. So would you say then that this picture of the historical Jesus is something that is only relevant for Christians? Or is it a question that's relevant for skeptics as well? Um, you know, any historian can be interested in him as a historical figure, but I would say one of the biggest ways that it's valuable for skeptics is the evidential value that there is in this unity of character. 
um, for the reliability of the gospel. So it feeds into the way in which the reliability of the gospels is important uh, for a skeptic to come up against the fact that this is the same Jesus in these various subtle ways across the gospels. Um, and that that's very surprising if these are coming at a long end of a, a long train of telephone game, as Bart Ehrman likes to say, <laughs> reports, we would not expect this kind of subtle unity of character. So in that sense, that challenges the skeptic as well. Now, one of the ways that you describe Jesus is as witty. Um, could you just share some examples of how Jesus is witty? One of my, one of my favorite examples here is that in three different places, in three different Gospels, he is puncturing um, hypocrisy and double standards in uh, some of the religious leaders of his day, but using a kind of a play on words. So in the one case, the ruler of the synagogue chides uh, a woman for coming to be healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you will unloose an animal to let him get water on the Sabbath, but you're condemning me for loosing this woman because she was unable to stand up. She was bent over, whom Satan has bound for 18 years. So it's that kind of loosing and loosing. Then in, um, that's in Luke. Then in John, Jesus is um, annoyed because he has been condemned for healing a crippled man on the Sabbath. And he says, well, you'll circumcise a boy on the eighth day if it happens to fall on the Sabbath, which, by the way, is externally confirmed. That was an actual rabbinic mm. ruling. Um, but I made a whole man whole. I made a man's whole body whole on the Sabbath. And then that's supposed to be a problem. So again, we got that sort of cutting off and making whole. And then thirdly, in Matthew, when he's condemning the Pharisees, he says, um, you you tithe your mint and dill and cumin, these lightweight herbs, but you've neglected the weightier matters of truth and justice. It's the same guy. It's very clearly the same guy. But who would think of making up those very rabbinic plays on words you know, instead of just copying the same story, it's three different stories, no. but they all show the same mind, the same way that that mind works and, and that that sharpness of wit and speech that he has. So if Jesus is witty, then what does that mean for us? Because I guess for a lot of people, they would sort of see Jesus as quite boring and lots of rules, that kind of thing. It kind of totally blows all of that out of the water, doesn't it? It, it does. Yeah, because... It, it, it just begins, it's just one way of beginning to show us this very vivid person. You know, and as C.S. Lewis once said, the first question that comes to you when you read the Gospels is, who, who is this? You know, who is this person? It, it, it's a very challenging portrait to us. And I think his wit is part, just part of that. And I guess most people would think of Jesus, at the very least, as a good teacher. And why is Jesus's teaching so significant? Well, from a historical point of view, even a skeptic, unless he's a mythicist, would probably acknowledge that Jesus existed and was a teacher. But what we see when we find his teaching style being similar in so many different ways is that we have reason to believe that we're actually in contact with people who heard him. You know, they actually heard him teach. And so then we're actually in contact with his historical teachings, not with what somebody else 
you know, put into his mouth for some theological agenda. And what was it about his teaching style that was so unique compared to his contemporaries at the time? Well, for one thing, he he never seems to directly address later controversies. You know, his teaching is very rooted in that pre-AD 70 time and place. Even the questions that he's being asked to answer and to address, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar and that kind of thing. Um, Also, he tends to always uh, or often at least use an illustration. So if they're fighting, he goes and gets a child. He puts the child among them. And he says, you must receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child. You must become as a little child. Um, Or he'll get up and wash their feet. Or he'll say, look at the fields. They're white to harvest. He's constantly teaching from the moment. He's grabbing that opportunity in whatever that immediate context is to, um, to use that to teach. And I think that's like a very, very vivid portrayal that we get of him, um, that we say, okay, you know, that's the man. There's the man. This is what he what he was really like. And why would the way that Jesus's teaching style is portrayed in the Gospels have been so difficult for the Gospel writers to fabricate, do you think? Well, I think because it's done subtly. You know, Jesus, he's not a caricature. You know, he's not like some television character who's always making the same joke um, or where the writers are always, you know, making uh, him do the same thing over and over again. Um, it's it's much subtler and that makes it hard. We find that even, you know, if you binge watch an entire television show where the later writers, uh, if they're not the same episode writers, they could actually have watched the earlier episodes if they wanted to. And yet sometimes they'll just go in a completely different direction. It's hard to get those subtleties of character the same, you know, even if you're motivated to. And yet here we have these different authors telling different stories and pointing, as in the case of that uh, loosing and loosing, heavy and light and so forth that I mentioned a moment ago, pointing in these subtle ways to the same person. I think that's very difficult to do. Uh, I think it would be hard even if they did sit down and collude on it, but even harder because I think it's obvious that they did nothing of the sort. Now, you've got a section within this chapter on the disconcerting Jesus, and you say um, the post-resurrection Jesus is not particularly soothing. What do you mean by that? Well, he's um, he doesn't answer their questions. <laughs> and and he, he was kind of like that before. You know, sometimes he would answer their questions. Sometimes he wouldn't, or he would answer them in a cryptic way. So, for example, uh, in John... Peter turns around, this is one of the post-resurrection appearances, and he sees the beloved disciple, and he says, uh, what, what about him? And Jesus says, you know, basically, what about him? This is none of your business. You know, you follow me. And he doesn't answer what's going to happen to that person uh, because he's just predicted Peter's death, but he doesn't, he's not going to tell him about the other disciple. Or in, now this is in the first chapter of Acts, uh, post-resurrection appearance, they ask Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a very important question to them. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has placed within his own power. So he's out there being uh, cryptic, uh, difficult, authoritative, but also loving, very much the same after his resurrection as before his death. 
And I think that's very noticeable. I think if, if you were making those things up, you would be more inclined to make him sort of, woo, 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 you know, and, and, and glorified and dispensing uplift. Everything is good. Everything is fine now and that kind of thing. And that's not really what he's like at all, even in those post-resurrection appearances. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the kind of, uh, yeah, the, the, the idea that Jesus is not is not always the way we would perhaps want him to be portrayed. Um, but we've talked about Jesus being witty, but one of the other um, words that you mentioned when you're talking about Jesus is sarcastic. Would you give some examples of where Jesus is sarcastic in the Gospels? Right, it's, it's a surprising trait. But um, when they're going to stone him one time, when the people are going to stone him because he's offended at them by uh, claiming equality with God, he says, I've done many good works among you. For which of these good works are you stoning me? Man, you know, he just hits them and it's very facetious, you know. Um, or another example is when the uh, rulers come and say, you better get out of here or um, Herod is going to kill you. And he says, I must journey on uh, today and tomorrow because it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. When you really hear that, it's got that that sarcastic sort of almost bitter ring to it. Well, you know, I'm a prophet. Don't worry, Herod's not going to kill me before I get to Jerusalem because prophets got to die in Jerusalem. It's really sharp. And and there are there are a number of these like this. Um, another thing that C.S. Lewis says is that if he is who he is saying he is, we're not called upon to judge him. We're not called upon to say, you know, Jesus, that wasn't a very nice thing to say, in other <laughs> words. Um, but if he is not who he says he is, well, then he's rude, you know, or he's, um, you know, being being too harsh or whatever. Um, so in that sarcasm, I think what we see is a challenge to ourselves to ask ourselves, is he is he really who he claims to be? Because if he is, then he has a right to to say things and do things that we would find harder to do without sin. Well, yeah, and I guess that's the key point, isn't it? Because I think we often think of sarcasm as being unkind and, and things like that. But you're saying that he's sarcastic without any of those negative elements, potentially. Right, right. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Now, two of the sections within this chapter of your book, Testimonies, focus on the loneliness of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. And and how can the loneliness and the suffering of Jesus speak to a hurting world, do you think, Lydia? If he suffered without sin, then suffering is not intrinsically sinful, even mental suffering. So one one of the things that I emphasize is the way that Jesus, uh, in in multiple accounts actually, he will go back and forth, you know. So he'll he'll say, "My heart is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, I came into the world." Or he'll say, "Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." So, or Jesus, he'll say at one point, um, you all forsake me and I will be alone. And yet I am not alone, but the Father is with me. And yet on the cross, we find him crying out in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And so I think sometimes we are inclined to think that that alteration of the mind when we're in pain or we're worried about something or we're afraid between um, confidence. Okay, God has a plan. And fear. How can I do this? How can I bear this? That's sinful. But that isn't necessarily intrinsically sinful. Jesus himself suffered that kind of mental alternation between confidence and pain, confidence and fear, um, confidence and feeling abandoned. And so therefore, we can just give give that over to God as something that is okay for us to suffer and that he has suffered before us. He has been there already. And I guess a huge element of Jesus's suffering and his loneliness and crying out on the cross and, you know, the picture that we have painted for us in Gethsemane speaks really powerfully of the humanity of Jesus and therefore him understanding what we're going through. But how do we hold both the humanity of Jesus with the divinity of Jesus that the gospel writers also um, sort of quite clearly describe? It's it's a difficult theological concept. I mean, it definitely is. Nobody, I think, should ever claim to have you know, sort of plumb, plumbed the depths, right, of the, the incarnation, both man and God. Um, but it's it's very striking how the Gospels don't seem to struggle with it. They just tell us what happened. And that can be, I, I think, a sort of um, a hint to us as well, that we can just say, well, somehow, you know, this works together. He is he is God. We see that in his just his assumption of authority, his assumption of the authority to uh, criticize, to be strong, to be challenging, and then we see his humanity in his his vulnerability. You know, he take he takes things personally. He he'll say, "Will you also go away?" I mean, it's very poignant. You know, will you also go away when some of his um when some of his pe- disciples have stopped following him because he's offended them with his teaching, um. So, in a sense, it's just this fact that's out there. He's God and he's man. He knows everything. He can read their thoughts. And yet, at the same time, he prays to God the Father that this cup may be taken from him. And so that, just that balance that the Gospels have can tell us that, okay, these things can be held together. They're in tension, but they're in balance at the same time. And our first responsibility is to the facts that we have reported to us. Um, I think you've got a great quote in your book kind of about this. I'll just read it if that's okay. You say that we are not forced to choose between a Jesus who's confident that the Father is with him and therefore that he's never alone and a Jesus who feels abandoned on the cross. It's all the same Jesus. And I right. suppose even if we don't know how we hold those intentions, it's, it's one of those kind of tricky questions that we just... We do hold it in tension, even if we perhaps don't know how we're doing it. Right, right. One thing that philosophers realize, or some philosophers, is that the phrase, how can, is not necessarily an argument against something. So, you know, to just say, how can mind and matter interact? You know, um, that's not even an argument. It's it's not (laughs) even an argument. You need to go further than that to say that there's actually some problem here. So to say, how can Jesus be both God and man? It's like, yeah, you know, I'm maybe never going to completely understand that because I have a finite mind, but that doesn't mean it's actually uh, a contradiction. 
Now, one of the categories that you list in your book is the I told you so, Jesus. Where are some examples of this? And I guess sort of significantly, doesn't that make him a little bit less desirable to some people? Because no one likes a kind of know-it-all, do they? <laughs> right, and be told, I told, I told you so, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes the way he does it is as a kind of preemptive reassurance. So we find him saying in the synoptics, um, so I've told you before that false teachers are going to come and they're going to claim to be the Christ, but they're not. Don't listen to them, you know, or we find him in John saying, you know, you're going to be persecuted. You will be persecuted. And I've told you before so that when it happens, you will know. So what, what he's doing there is to try to say to them, this is all part of the plan. This is not, um, you know, not like, oh, my goodness, you know, something must be going wrong in the plan because we're being persecuted. The person can actually have that as, as a confirmation of Jesus' uh, foreknowledge, Jesus' control, God's purpose in life and so forth, because he actually told us before. So that's actually kind of desirable. But other times, like with Peter, you know, he tells Peter, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to deny me. And Peter says, no, I'm not. He's like, yes, you are. Yes, and they got to yes. go back and forth. And then by the Sea of Galilee in John 21, he reminds him of that very uncomfortably. Peter, do you love me more than these, by which he means these other disciples? And Peter's like, yes, okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, that's him three times. Very uncomfortable. But we can see he's doing it for a reason. So he's like a, like a doctor who maybe does something painful, but it's ultimately for your greater good. And so again, if he is who he says he is, then we can trust him, you know, even when he does this kind of I told you so thing. And there's a third category of I told you so that I, I really love that is actually very sweet um, in, a, in a good sense, not a, uh, not a weak sense of sweet, but where um, Jesus told them, that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And so the women come to the tomb. They find it empty and an angel speaks to them. And the angel says, he's not here. And he says, remember that he told you when he was in Galilee. And it says that they remembered his words. And so in a sense, this is, I told you. So it's a message coming from Jesus through the angel that says, I told you it was all going to be all right. Yeah. You know, I, I told you. And so this is a kind of I told you so that it's very beautiful and it sort of catches at the heart. Remember, he told you when he was in Galilee and they remembered his words. So that's that's a wonderful sort of I told you so. Well, I guess it sort of raises the question, perhaps not that final wonderful I told you so, but but the the character of I told you so, the disconcerting Jesus, perhaps sometimes even the sarcastic Jesus raises those questions of, of what are we to make of some of these more difficult aspects of Jesus's character, do you think? I think they really arise from his authority. I really do. I think they arise from the fact that he believed he was God. And if he really was God, he had the right to do these things. Mm. Um, and so that's something we have to confront. You know, C.S. Lewis said, you can't. You you could hardly imagine him as being shorter than yourself. <laughs> well, now I'm very short, so I would never have thought of that. Everybody's taller than I am, you know. But um, you know, in a, in a sort of metaphoric sense, that you can't imagine him as being shorter than yourself. 
And so these difficult aspects, I think, arise out of that sense of self-confidence and authority that he has. He knows who he is, and he knows that he's come to this world to call this world to repentance and to know the Father and to challenge them and to challenge us. Have we softened the rough edges of Jesus's character, do you think? And if so, what's the danger in doing that? I think it's, it is a great danger. And I think each era tends to make Jesus over in the image they want it to be. So perhaps the Victorian era wanted him to see it, wanted to see him as sweet. And then, um, the era when modernism was entering in just wanted to see him as a good man and a good teacher. Perhaps uh, in later eras, he was seen as a, a revolutionary, as endorsing, you know, uh, some particular agenda of, um, you know, overturning all of society or something like that. And that is something Jesus really won't allow. If we, if we go back to the documents themselves, and we try to read them, we try to see them, um, there's an uncompromisingness about it. It's like a rock, you know, you knock your head against uh, a rock and, you, you know, you're going to feel it. And so I think when we, when we try to take that historical nature of the gospel seriously, that's going to serve as a needed corrective to our desire to make Jesus over in the nature of our own agenda. This might be a really difficult question to answer, and I suppose in some senses there is mystery around this, but who was the authentic historical Jesus? He was God and man who lived and walked on this earth for a certain amount of time, 30-some years. He died, he rose again, he went back to heaven. And that's what we can know and what we can cling to. You know, there's a great uh, quotation that I like, in the autobiography of Agatha Christie, uh, she's talking about herself. And she says, um, I can never know the whole Agatha, but I can sometimes know the true Agatha. She says, the, the whole Agatha, I believe, is known only to God. It's a very profound quotation, and I think it applies to Jesus. We as finite creatures may never know the whole Jesus. We can, you know, back up and we can just like understand it all. But we can know the real Jesus, the true Jesus. We can know truths that are completely true. It's not like they're partly false or something like that, um, because that's what he wants us to do. And that's why he came and taught and gave us uh, the Gospels. That's why his, his disciples were moved to write these things so that we could know the real Jesus, the true Jesus. Now, Lydia, why do you personally believe that Jesus was who he said he was in the Gospels? Well, I, I think that the trilemma that C.S. Lewis gives is good, and also the argument from the resurrection. I tend to put those two things together. So that trilemma was, you know, liar, lunatic, or Lord. You know, he's, he's either a madman because he's claiming to be God. And I really do think he claimed to be God. I don't think there's any equivocation about that. I defend the historicity of John with those very unequivocal statements and then also other statements even in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So uh, either he's crazy, that thinks he's God and he's not God, or he's, um, you know, a liar, like a really bad guy trying to claim he's God to gain worship, or he's who he said he was. And I, I think that 
actually has power as an argument, but then also because of the strong evidence we have from his disciples' testimony that he rose from the dead, thus confirming it. So, you know, it's it's like a, a tough shot, you know, in, in some sport where you say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to throw this basketball from way across the court. You know, I'm going to get it in. And it's what Jesus said, you know, I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. Watch, right? Um, and uh, or, or like in baseball, we have a story of Babe Ruth saying, I'm going to, I'm going to hit a home run. I'm going to put it right over there. You know, so he's, he's going out there. He's risking it. And then all the more powerfully then, it looks like he actually did it. <laughs> he actually did rise from the dead and confirm his own predictions. That's a very powerful argument that he was who he said he was. And Lydia, as we close this final episode, what relevance does the real historical Jesus have for skeptics today? Because this isn't just a question for Christians, is it? It's definitely relevant to skeptics because it's it's got such a high stake. Um. I go with a kind of a modified version of what's known as Pascal's Wager. I don't use Pascal's Wager in its sort of classic form, like, you know, uh, crudely people will express it as, well, you know, you've got everything to gain and nothing to lose, you might as well be a Christian. I, I wouldn't go with it that way. But a modified version that says the stakes are so high here, and there is some prima facie historical evidence about this, that it is worth your time to investigate it thoroughly. And so that's the challenge I would put out there to the skeptic. The stakes are very high. If this man was who he said he was, then he calls upon you to worship him. And he says he's the way to God. And that knowing him is the difference between ultimate bliss and ultimate horror, okay? And so it's worth your time, it's worth your while to give this a fair shot to look into it, to investigate it, and consider it um, as thoroughly as possible and as thoroughly as your life circumstances allow, because this is really important. And I think that's the the challenge that Jesus uh, utters, even in such a brief um, presentation as we've been able to have here to skeptics. Lydia, thank you so much. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, but I will make sure that there are links with today's show so that people can get a hold of your book, Testimonies to the Truth, and and the other works that you've written. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ruth. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.